Second Bananas is recorded on unceded indigenous land belonging to the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Unceded means that this land was never surrendered, relinquished, or handed over in any way. We support the various strategies that indigenous peoples use to protect their land and their communities, and we commit to working in solidarity with them. We acknowledge that as people living and working on these lands, we are accountable to those who have cared for this land since time immemorial. It is our intention to continue learning how to honor this responsibility. So that's, okay. again, like there, okay, I'm a little more assuaged, but it's still just like, well, you know, it just, it puts you on edge, right? Wait, so wait, I mean, what is, why is 88? Uh, it's the eighth letter of the alphabet is H. Heil H. Hitler. 88 is HH, Heil Hitler. Wow, okay. Same that's with four, for 14, which is it, Well, it's Adolf a stretch in I'm general. I'm just learning about all these symbols. <laughs> but it's, I but it's, no a spe- but 88, it's code. 88 is a specific one that Nazis use. God damn it. First they took our Pepe. But I didn't know. So like you can't like the OK symbol now is also that's been stolen. Well, because like, that's, that's what they do, and they do that on purpose, and that's right. a whole other episode. So let's get into the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's uh, let's get away from this. What do you got? What do you got? For uh, us? So welcome to Second Bananas, where we talk about the clout behind the clout you may not have heard about. Uh, what we're gonna do here today <laughs> is we're gonna take a well-known figure in history and look at maybe a person behind them or next to them or adjacent to them that uh, really is sort of wrapped up in their legacy and cannot be extricated, but is an interesting person on their own. And sometimes they get overshadowed by that person. Um, yeah. Where it's a pretty broad topic and we're going to be pretty broad in interpreting what counts as a second banana because that's what we want to do. That's right. Um, so I'm Joe Stillwell. Hi, Joe. Host number, host, the host that spoke first. You're, you're the number one host, host number I'd one. say. I'm host, I don't know, man. I don't want to get into that. <laughs> you can be the host number one. I don't mind. I'll be host number two. I will. T- oh, <laughs> Craig, what do you think about this? Dodge that bullet. I'll be host number three. So, uh, okay. Gladly. So let's just mark our voices. I've marked mine. Uh, uh, host this number is Wes two. Walcott, host number two. And host number three, Craig Blanchard. Woo. Those are oh, our real yeah. names. You can look us up online. You can. Uh, don't stalk us. We will get out a restraining order. You can or, stalk me. I don't know. We might just have guns. I don't know. I have guns. Or both. So, um, today, who are we talking about, guys? First, we're talking about Majel Barrett Roddenberry. Majel. Real name, Majel Lee Hudek. Wow. Stage name, Majel Barrett. Uh, she was an actress and the wife of Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek. That's right. I actually tried looking up her name, Majel, because it's a very odd name, and I can find it in any lists of baby names or any, really no. Yeah, it seems, seems like very, a pretty original name. Well, and I always thought it was maybe because like Hudek is sort of like a um, an Eastern European name, yeah. and so I thought it was maybe Mayel or something like that, or like Mehel or like you know something. Yeah, but, um, like the H is but it's it, every every interview and like pronunciation and everyone who talks about her says Majel. Majel. So that's at least the pronunciation that she uses. Yeah. Um, it's spelled M A J E L, and um, I guess to start. Should we just get into it? Is that the plan? Let's okay. just get into it. 
Uh, she's often referred to as the first lady of Star Trek as her status as Gene Roddenberry's wife. Um, not his first wife, his second wife. We'll get more into that later. Um, her big, her biggest um, claim to fame is that she's been in every Star Trek series um, from the very first pilot all the way to uh, video game tie-ins, um, any, any yeah. time where they have to use her voice. Because most famously, she is the voice of the computer on all the starships and right. the space stations and stuff. So she's the voice of essentially the Federation computer. Right. Uh, she's also been in, she was in the original pilot as number one, who was the first officer. Uh, the series, she played nurse slash doctor um, Christine Chapel, And then in The Next Generation in Deep Space Nine, she played... Lawaxana Troy, who is Deanna Troy's mother, mm-hmm. um, kind of a, a real, uh, almost like a like a very much a Lucille Ball type like character. Yeah, I, um, I definitely didn't know that she was she acted on the show. I just thought that was like really interesting that it's like oh, Gene Roddenberry actually had his wife acting on this show, which I had no oh, idea. Oh, that was we will we're right. going to get into yeah. that more. <laughs> I, I I actually most of my sources. I started with Wikipedia and Memory Alpha, which is a Star Trek wiki. I did look into a lot of the sources, and there are a lot of sort of like inside, behind-the-scenes books of Star Trek. Um, they're pretty credible sources. They're cited pretty much everywhere. And I've, I have I borrowed a couple of them from the library. I read a couple of them and then flipped through the rest because I ran out of time. And I realized I was doing far too much research for a, a, a 45 to hour minute hour-long podcast. Shame on you. I might have uh, done that too. Shame! <laughs> Yeah, and so yeah, her her biggest thing is yeah. I think people mostly know her as the Waxana Troy, um, especially nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're I more of a, a classic, yeah, I think if you're more of a classic series fan, you know her as Nurse Chapel. Uh-huh. Um, and then once people, once you tell people that she's the voice of the computer, they're like, oh, yeah. And I also thought the f- it was really funny because in when I was watching her episodes, it was like there's an episode where she goes to use the holodeck and she's. It's her talking to herself. It is just like, oh, that's a funny. Yeah, she's joke. arguing with the computer, uh, yeah. and she even says like, "Oh, this stupid machine," yeah. like something like that. Right? Yeah, so cool. clearly, and del- very a very deliberate joke. Um, what struck me most about uh, Majel is there's clearly a lot of um, later mythologizing, and I think I think she absolutely was key to Star Trek in a lot of ways, like a lot of very subtle, kind of hard to explain ways. Um, like she was Gene Roddenberry's wife. And I think more than that, they were, uh, partners in a lot of respects. Like, I think they really had a strong bond between the two of them and they really connected. And I think she was absolutely devoted to him and more so, even more so to sort of cementing his legacy as this creator of Star Trek, which was this huge phenomenon. Um, and I think honestly, up until Gene Roddenberry started to get sick and died, I don't think that people really thought of her as that. I think that is a much later thing that has sort of happened over time because she kind of became the face of Star Trek after Gene Roddenberry died in a lot of ways. And I think it's a good thing. And I think like, I'm glad that that happened because like, otherwise we probably wouldn't be doing this episode. Right. So kind of shone the spotlight on her a little bit. And I do think, I think, yeah, exactly. And I think part of the reason she was considered unimportant is sexism, but also because she was really like an actress. She wasn't like, she did, she's, she claimed until the day she died that she never, like, she definitely like 
was a sounding board for Roddenberry's ideas and scripts. And like, she, you know, she'd listen to it and help him tweak dialogue. But she said like all of the ideas for Star Trek really came from Jean. And she was just there to sort of facilitate that as an actress and, and as a wife and as a like producer, essentially. And partner. Generally. Yeah. And then yeah. like, that's the interesting thing is I think like, um, I think um, especially in modern times, like people give a, a lot of credit to, writers for things that actors actually do and or even that are sort of like something an actor does can often inspire a writer especially on a tv series that's long running is when you write a character in for the first time often you can see if you watch a whole series like star trek or anything that's been on for a while and you go back to the early episodes you'll see that the character is actually very subtly different from the way they end up being and they do things sort of not completely out of character but you're like oh yeah that's weird to think that they would do that and that's because often the actor begins to inform the character and the writers start to see, you know, what the actor really brings to the character and good writers will write to that. Yeah. I find that, well, at least when I always wanted to get to the point when I was writing fiction where I could have like a set of characters where it's like, I don't even need to write this. I can just put these characters in a scenario and I know these characters so well that I know how they would act and like, and you could have your story kind of like, write itself through the characters kind of and but i just i, I could never flesh out characters huh. that well that i could it's hard to do, do it do without that. writing actually yeah um that's the best way to do it is to write the characters and and put them in situations and learn who they are yeah um, in my opinion as a writer anyway. right. but um yeah so i guess we'll talk a little bit about bananimous prime as i call it uh gene roddenberry he's the creator of star <laughs> trek of course um a lot of a lot of ink has been spilled about Gene. A lot of words have been said. Um, I don't want to get my biggest thing was like because they're so intertwined, like heavily, and they worked on all the same shows and they're in the same industry. Like my my sort of challenge with this episode was like, how much do I include about Gene without making it about Gene, but also making sure we understand how important he was in Majel's life and sort of the way he affected her life as much as she affected his. But I decided I'm not going to get too much into Gene Roddenberry's backstory beyond he um, he was a pilot in World War II, like a full he served he did like something like 87 combat missions, yeah. and like the definition of a combat mission is kind of like some of those missions I'm sure were like well combat's possible, but I do think he actually did see combat and war, and one of the things I really appreciate about Star Trek is it it's always taken um, a very humanistic view of war of like people and taken i think like i didn't realize until i was older how uh sort of um intrinsic like not only um the trauma that war causes but also um the way that that trauma never leaves you and even if you sort of like learn to cope with it and the way that um and the way people talk about trauma in a healthy way in a way of like looking at it and and being honest about it and sort of like dealing with that trauma even though it's hard or whatever i think star trek has 99 percent of the time handled that very well i think it's something and i think you can see that right back to the original series because i think that is something of gene roddenberry's experience so um but then so he was an airline pilot and then he became a police officer when he moved to la while trying to become a tv writer and eventually he did become a full-time tv writer he very much was a writer who wanted to use science fiction and TV as a way to, to address social issues. Um, 
uh, he was he was his big uh, influence was Gulliver's Travels actually and Jonathan Swift in general. Which like the more I think about it, it's it's kind of a strange comparison at first. But the more you think about it, the more you're like, oh my god, that is so obvious. Mm-hmm. Gulliver Travels. That's the one with like a giant or a guy goes. So a guy goes to different. It's actually the Gulliver's Travels that we know is actually only one part of the story. Oh. And all of those that he meets like people that are much smaller than him. He meets people that are much larger than him. He meets like. Oh. centaurs he meets like a bunch of different like strange fantastical things it's almost like a more contemporary odyssey in the sense yeah and it's also to gloss over all of that obviously but very much um all of it was talking about the um it was satirizing uh cultures and attitudes and that kind of thing at the time that swift saw in his culture yeah hmm. and what, um, when, when was he writing I think it was the 1700s, 1800s. Yeah. It was oh, okay. sort of post the birth of the novel. Uh-huh. But when the novel was still this proto thing that didn't have a really defined concept. But we're getting off track. <laughs> I'll, um, do, I'll do that from time to time. So he really, he because he was a police officer, he ended up writing on a lot of police shows because he was a consultant on them before he was a, a police officer or before he was a full-time writer. But he really got tired of it. And I think that is one of the most interesting things. Um, He wrote a show. He created a show called The Lieutenant, which is about Marines during the Cold War. And one of the episodes he produced was specifically about um, racial prejudice. And there was like uh, a black Marine and his fiance being harassed by a white Marine. And it was so sort of like controversial at the time that when they delivered the episode, the network refused to air it or pay for it. And right. uh, and that was actually, that's Nichelle Nichols played the Marine's fiance. And that's another thing is on the Lieutenant, Gene Roddenberry met, Majel Barrett was on it. Leonard Nimoy was on it. Uh, Gary Lockwood, who was also a oh, guest star on the original Star Trek, a bunch of the actors and directors and producers that Gene would go on to work with throughout his career. He met a lot of them on the Lieutenant. Hmm. So he, he creates Star Trek, um, and at this point, he and Majel are having an affair. He's completely estranged from his first wife. Um, they have two kids together. But uh, he meets Majel, and what she said was um, that they started as friends and slowly became lovers. And she actually didn't think he was going to leave his wife. Um, she said, I think I have the quote here. Um, I'm getting, I'm kind of, I'm getting was, ahead of myself, yeah. actually. Sorry. She was okay with that, though. She was like. Kind of. <laughs> I think. That's another aspect we'll get into is Mm -hmm. whether or not they had some sort of non-monogamous arrangement or whether he, I think either way, he definitely broke that arrangement and had affairs outside of what was allowed or whatever they had decided on. But there are a bunch of stories that I kind of just, I'm not going to get into of like, sort of like just people fucking around and being sexually open on behind the scenes of Star Trek. Um, so yeah, Gene Roddenberry. Um, also, we know he was misogynistic, which was like he wasn't overly misogynistic for the time in general. I think he was about right. what what was expected of men to think about women at the time with a bit more forward thinking. Like I think he did believe that some women at least could be more than just housewives and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm again, I don't want to get too much into like what he thought. But he did, he was very, like, he had a lot of affairs. Um, there was, there pretty much every woman that's been connected with him, it's been asserted that they had an affair. I think what it was, was he did have several affairs. He did, I think he's sort of that thing of, like, he's kind of a sensitive soul. 
he has trouble talking to men so he relates to women better and that kind of leads to a lot of like intimacy things and then you know stuff like that i don't really want to get into it too much but yeah i think that's definitely what happened um yeah he was also um he tended to rewrite a lot of other writer scripts which is not entirely unheard of for tv but he didn't like fuck up several friendships due to it <laughs> like over the course of his career like what? there was wga arbitration over script credits and stuff like that Ooh. Oh, like he would like take a script and no, no, he so he would rewrite a script quite heavily and then put his own name on it. Oh, and then okay. There would be arbitration over credits. Some of that is automatic. Like if enough people write a script, it has to go through the arbitration process to determine. But it does sound like it happened a lot with him, and it wasn't even a malicious thing. It was just sort of like this. This isn't Star Trek. Like this doesn't quite fit Star Trek. It's unproducible. Is another big thing with science fiction TV. Like. We can't make that. We, we don't have the budget for that. Right. Like a lot of it was just like last hour, desperation, panic. Some of it was, I think, a little, especially later on, was definitely him trying to exert a lot of control. Um, and yeah, he was a bit of a skis when it came to business practices. I think a lot of that was in response to constantly being like screwed over by networks and large TV corporations. But yeah, there are a few stories about him saying pretty nasty things about women sometimes. Uh, and and uh, homosexuals and he did later in life say like well I used to be that way but I'm not anymore like he was and he was he was actually trying to get a, a gay character on Star Trek the next generation and when he died that was kind of blocked by another person named Rick Berman which I'm not going to get into today right but the most famous story is that around the time he was going through his divorce he was talking to um uh, another producer on the show and he said and they were doing an episode about where kirk and and a kirk's ex-lover switches bodies with him and he said like oh you know women blah 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 but you can never let them have any real power because all women are see you next tuesdays and you can't trust them That's and impressive. that was in 1969 he has addressed those concerns since then and this was sort of an apocryphal story that is in one of his biographies it's not corroborated but knowing everything else it's not entire like right. it's totally believable and it sounds like he did sort of like recant that view I, he was definitely going through a very bitter divorce at the time and not that that's an excuse for treating women shabby other women shabbily but i've not i have heard that sentiment expressed in bitter divorces from both sexes Right. And there's there's a lot of power dynamics and societal dynamics to take into account. I'm not excusing it. I'm just saying I think he did change over time. It may have tinted his perspective on yes. things or maybe held him back from moving forward with his yeah. ideas. And uh, as emotional things do. Yeah. Sometimes. But this isn't about Gene. No. And uh, <laughs> I think it's time to stop talking about Gene. <laughs> Gene. Uh, Sorry, I can't help but do the Gene. Wolverine. Scott Summers, Gene Gray screen. <laughs> so, Majel Barrett, um, born in Shaker Heights, a suburb of Shaker Cleveland, Heights. Ohio. That sounds like a dope town. Uh, it was one of the first planned communities. Planned, like I'm gonna need to to, to like open a that up a suburb. Bit. Oh, like planned. A, a, that kind a, of like planned. A, a, a yeah. <laughs> I was I was going somewhere else. <laughs> I was thinking like company town. Oh. Not Coming no, this was more like like the suburban, the white flight suburban fifty. I think it was actually early twenties that it was what incorporated. Okay. So they planned the name. I don't understand. Like it I was a suburb that was built before up until the the nineteen forties. 
it was really just like, you well, just... we need to build some stuff. We need to build houses. We need to build shops. Okay. Oh, in yeah. in the fifties, with like the advent of, of modernism and technology, there was this idea we need to plan our so, community. So like when you see the billboards of like we're gonna build this, we're gonna build this subdivision. It's gonna have like a mall here. Yes, and it's that's, the modern, like that's the modern. That's the modern version of that, which mm. has basically more or less remained unchanged. It's just gotten more complicated. Right. The previous um, iteration was just place where there's work, place where people live close as possible yeah right. but with cars you don't need to be that close yeah. anymore so you can right. have a fancy and there was as as somewhere. segregation desegregation happened white people concern like white people who still believed in segregation didn't want to live next to black people so they moved out into the suburbs instead of in major cities right which is where you get the 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 urban designation right. for black and latino culture comes from suburban comes from sub suburban which are planned communities outside of the city that you can drive to and from and are safe and right. nice and good mm-hmm. neighborhoods without any crime right. now I I, again like that's it was this it was this 50s and the 40s when she lived there um i don't i don't know about shaker heights specifically apparently it's actually one of the most racially diverse suburbs of cleveland so okay but that's where she was born at around 10, her mother put her in the Cleveland Playhouse, which is like a theater group, uh, because, quote, Majel, I was a backward child. Backward. She uh, was weird. She was a weird kid who didn't know what to do with herself. And yeah. uh, apparently that was really I think, looked down upon back in the day. Well, and I think that's the other interesting thing is like that her mother had the foresight to put her wasn't just like, I don't know what the fuck to do with you, like boarding school. She put her in like a theater thing where she could express herself. Let's harness this backwardness. Yeah. Yeah. Let's harness, exactly, right? And um, she did say sort of, as she went through school, she felt that acting was what she wanted to do, but it was more of an avocation than a vocation, which means she felt it was more of like a hobby she would always have in her life than like a calling or a career, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, But what happened was she went to university and she did a, a radio and drama degree. Then she tried to do law school and she flunked out of law school. So that was when she decided, you know what? I'm just going to be an actress, which is an interesting origin story, I think. Um, And I think I've I've heard it expressed from a lot of people in the entertainment industry. Like, it's like, why are you in? Why do you do this? Like, well, I'm not really good at anything else. But yeah, it sounded like she was at least she had an interest or a passion for creative arts. I think honestly acting, she definitely like. She is an actress and actor or whatever in so many ways. Like you can really see it in like everything she pursued. Like she was, she was literally acting from the time she was 10 years old Mm -hmm. and she never really stopped. Like she was always doing it in some capacity. Um, Maybe even acting like she wanted to go to law school. Yeah. That's probably where that came from. Yeah. (laughs) Trying to appease the parents. Well, I'm sure that's part of it too. Right. Or even just thinking like, I need a safety. Like she's from a suburb. We were all there. Parents are only doing their due diligence by trying to dissuade their, their offspring from getting into acting. (laughs) I'm not not going to get into that statement today. (laughs) Um, That's a whole like sub episode of like what our parents think of us. My my sketch teacher was telling me that his dad pitches him sketch ideas, but they're never like they're funny and they give him ideas, but it's never like the sketch idea that his dad pitches. Like he's also a drummer and his dad found a pencil that's also a drumstick. And he was like, you got to do something with this. Like it's got to be like you're drumming and then you turn over and you're right. So like that's like that's like that's kind of like what you want from a parent is they're just like encouraging you. Yeah, I can only hope. But um, interestingly, another note, um, her father was also a police officer. And when she met Jean, he 
was either finishing being a police officer or um, just sort of like working on cop shows and definitely had the like he it was known that he was a police officer. He retained his cop like gravitas. I think in a little bit. <laughs> I think that may have been part of the old reel in job. That old yeah. Um, but I think it's interesting because her father was actually killed. He was on duty, but the, his the car he was in was struck by a train. Train and I, what? or like a well a streetcar. Oh, okay, it's a bad part. Um, or something yeah, like I was that. And yeah, I don't know. I, I, I couldn't find more details. I just found the the source for that is his obituary that says him and his partner were killed while on duty when their patrol car was struck by a train, and she was actually on tour with an off Broadway company, and like that's like that's the worst place to be when your parent dies is like now i get to not go. able to go back to yeah. them like, and then yeah, having to perform perfect. like probably and having to on perform stage. on stage yeah on in like what is probably a musical at the time it was the 50s so musicals were extremely popular that's what off-broadway was at the time probably like, lots of jazz hands wow. when you're not quite feeling like it <laughs> yeah for those who for rough. those for the listeners at home we all just did jazz, jazz. Oh, yeah. simultaneously oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, perfectly on cue <laughs> um but yeah, I think I, I don't want to get into too much psychology, but I think like there is a thing where like I think there's like, you know, police families and military families. And I think there, you know, there's something to that sort Absolutely. of like understanding of like not even like a in a like, you know, sort of dismissive or condescending way. It's a values thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I um, think that's fair and not dismissive. Yeah. So she moves to Hollywood um, <clears throat> and she has a few small parts. Starts getting most, she does some movies and she mostly gets on TV, including, she's been on like Leave it to Beaver. She's like a guest star on every show from like the 50s, Leave it to Beaver, General Hospital, like all of Laugh In, like all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And around 1962, she was taking an acting class that Lucille Ball was teaching. And Lucille Ball, that's I Love Lucy for everyone that doesn't Mm -hmm. know. Lucille Ball was so impressed or... At some point was impressed enough to sign her to a general contract, which at the time meant she would only act in productions for Lucille Ball's studio, Desilu. Um, She was on an episode of The Lucy Show, which is like a post I Love Lucy. It was it was like a variety slash sitcom type show. And the general consensus then is that she met Jean around 1961. Like I said, they were friends. Then they had an affair. Um, She did not think he would leave his life. Um, She said, uh, up until Jean actually left his wife, I couldn't anticipate spending my life with him. I felt I would spend the rest of my life loving him, but not necessarily with him. And that's a really interesting. And I think that that says a lot about her and what how she felt about this man. Sounds dedicated. Um, So she again, one of her big credits was she appeared in an episode of The Lieutenant in 1963 uh, worked alongside Leonard Nimoy, who was a friend of Gene Roddenberry's. Um, Nichelle Nichols, Gary Lockwood, Mark Daniels, who was one of the directors of the original Star Trek series. Just a lot of people. Um, and then around 1964, Gene finally sells the idea or the, 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 the pitch for Star Trek to Desilu, interestingly enough. And that's, that's something I couldn't find anything was how he, he was already a TV writer, so it could have been through his agent. But maybe it was because of his connection with Majel. I I don't know, right? Mm-hmm. But that was a big thing that Lucille Ball was actually a huge champion of Star Trek. Like really? with, it's believed without her, it would never have got off the ground. Like she was the one that this her studio bought the show. She absolutely believed in it. She brought it to the networks. 
she was like she was actually like a kind of a a, a behind the scenes producer on getting it off the ground interesting yeah lucille ball would not make a good second bananas subject however because she's she's, she's top very clearly a top banana yeah. well i would say yeah i would say desi arnaz is especially now is more of the second banana in that but that's a whole other thing of course um, yeah. yeah so that's really interesting the other funny thing is like so when he was bring when they were bringing it around after they after deslu had bought it and they were trying to get it to a network they brought the show to cbc and cbc was like oh yeah we're very interested come in let's have a meeting and they asked gene all these specific questions about how do you do that on a tv budget like how do you do this how do you do the effects and he told them all and they basically took all that stuff and applied it to their show, Lost in Space. Uh, I was going to say like... And I think that was like, he already didn't, hmm. he didn't like working for networks and executives and taking their notes. But I think that really set the tone for the way that the heads of studios and sort of like the network people and the executives and sort of like the money people saw Star Trek and the way they saw Gene and the way he was essentially always sort of like chafed by them trying to work around them trying to do as little as possible that they wanted him to do and nobody believed in star trek at the time like it was nobody a science fiction show of that sort of scale and magnitude and seriousness had never worked um nobody thought it could work so i think that really you really start to see that sort of like antagonistic um and distrust of networks and executives and all that stuff that gene really defined gene and i think majel's career but they finally sell Star Trek to NBC and they say, okay, Gene, give us three story premises, which is basically like a treatment. Like it's like, here's, here's what happens. Here's the character. Like it's basically like an outline of a script. It's just like three to 12 pages of like, here's the story. Here's the beginning, the middle, and the end. Here's what happens. Here's what we learn about the characters, that kind of stuff. Um, and they, he does that and they pick one called the cage, which is the original pilot that they make. Mm-hmm. And, um, Again, Majel is cast as number one. And what's interesting about that character is everyone knows Spock, obviously, from Star Trek, well, just through cultural I know Spock. osmosis. I've seen him around. In The Cage, uh, Spock is not emotionless. He actually is sort of like a, a hard ass. Who, but he smiles twice. What? He's a wreck. He he's a basket case. Yeah. Wow. And he's actually the specific thing <laughs> when they created the series was that he had kind of a demonic appearance. That was actually they initially yeah. wanted him to have red skin, but because there were so many black and white TVs, they were worried he would just look, look black. Black. <laughs> right. Or that, or that it would look like they they were putting him in blackface, which was still happening at the time today. but not what they're going <laughs> but for. and and leonard nimoy had had a uh he before spock he was sort of the guy brought in to play mexicans essentially leonard like to, nimoy. to don brown face wow. essentially he's even said like you know i don't want to again a, he's a spaghetti it was the 60s <laughs> it's not excusable but the people who did it you know have they're trying to work talked about it yeah. and and yeah interesting i don't want to anyway that's a whole other podcast <laughs> So what happened was they make the pilot and um, and here's a, another story from the pilot was that they have the the classic green skinned Orion slave girl. Oh, yes. And Majel was the, the makeup did the makeup test for that and they would shoot the makeup tests, send it to the lab because back in those days they actually had to work on film and it would come back and she'd have normal skin. She'd just look pink and. Gene Roddenberry and Majel and the makeup artist are like, what is going on? Why can't, why will this film not pick this up? And they do five or six different tests 
like this is them working like essentially on spec to to do this test in order to make sure that the green skin will show up in the actual show. And Gene Roddenberry finally goes down to the lab and he's like, hey, so what's going on? Like, is there some kind of technique we can use to get this green skin to appear? And the 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 lab tech at the photo developing place goes, oh, I thought you guys just had a shitty cinematographer. I didn't realize you wanted the skin. I to kept appear. on correcting it. And <laughs> like, <laughs> you never seen a space show before? Yeah, and like, dude. Nigel Barrett did like 10 tests or something like that. <laughs> did them all for him because I think she was just devoted to it. Yeah, right? fully so, oh, wow, yeah. they they don't like they they like the overall concept of the show. They think it's very good, but they don't like number one. They don't like Spock. Gene basically sits Majel down and says, "I'm combining number one and Spock into one character, and it's going to be Spock still." But they said they didn't like Spock. Yeah, but it was really important to Gene Roddenberry that they show that aliens like. that not only had prejudice against other humans disappeared but that prejudice against aliens had disappeared too and that aliens would serve with the crew without it being a thing, thing right rather than the aliens always being the villains too i think was kind of his mm-hmm. point i think she very much wanted that role i mean for so many reasons it's obvious like it's a starring role in a tv series it was more or less unheard of at the time like it's she's basically like Mm-hmm. In like real term equivalent, she's basically like the number one on yeah. a battleship, on a, like a battleship, yeah, or like a, a submarine or anything and like that, right? It's like that. Obviously it was a good role. It paid well, time. and it was like everything an actor wants. Um, and I think that sort of bonded the two of them against the networks as well, and against sort of like I think what really was the difference was um, it sort of became this. The networks were saying no to the show while there was this groundswell of support from science fiction fans. And we'll get into that a bit later. But I think that really sort of defined what happened with Star Trek. Right. So It sounds yeah. like step by step they're getting further galvanized as like mm-hmm. I pair against the world. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, do feel, I do get the sense that Star Trek, like its fan community has had the most influence like over a series or been responsible for like having well, it come back or having I mean, even it just done like, time and time again. You know, like cell phones. Uh, oh yeah. And all the like great series like, is literally that... Majel Barrett as the computer. That's literally what series yeah. is like. So apparently that was like a Star Trek launched like a thousand engineers careers. Yeah. <laughs> and so, it's like, yeah, yeah it, it has like practical ideas that people that in the sciences have inspired to create because they well, and, grew and up Gene watching Ron Star Trek. was very obsessed with the world sort of being not realistic, but like the technology being not some crazy exotic thing, but something that the, the crew was intimately familiar with and treated like we would any technology that we yeah, had today. Like the completely everyday thing that they almost yeah. looked past. They took for granted almost. Yeah. 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 So when you integral. look at the original tricorder with like that flip phone design, it was like you made a like flip phone before like cell phones. Were yeah. Well, around. that's what it was. It's all yeah. just like, and even like in the next generation, Deep Space Nine and Voyager, they had the pads. And Data like, pads. it's, it's, it's funny because in the time it was like, oh, it's like they have all these pads and like, blah, blah, blah. Like, but now you watch it. it. It's like, they're all just looking at tablets. Like that's a normal thing that everyone has now. Right. Yeah. And it's like, clearly that inspired, that was definitely part of the inspiration for, sure. for all that stuff. Right. Even the touch screens on, uh, you know, next generation and all the shows and clearly inspired yeah. touch screens like so much, or at least like definitely like brought it to people's minds. It's like. A possible technology mm, for sure. How far do you think we are from replicators? Oh, very far, extremely far. Holodex. Do you mean 3D printing is not 
I mean, that I know. was now it's we like just an need analog to have a, version an, of an atomic recombinator. But that was like that was essentially how Star Trek excused the fact that it was essentially communist. Was like there's no want anymore because right. we can we can take any resource and make it into any other resource yes. we want. So nobody. So can there's make no money absolutely no yeah. reason. Well, that's the for, idea. Yeah, the whole idea of like a post scarcity world is like when people aren't fighting for resources, are we going to find other things to fight about? Or Well, and that's, I think that's like something that Star Trek explored a lot. Mm-hmm. And I think, and that was a thing that Gene Roddenberry was very against. He thought that interpersonal conflict would have disappeared. Mm-hmm. Maybe, I don't think so. I think just the way human beings are, it's yeah. not possible, but also like that doesn't make for good TV. And that's a whole other mm-hmm. podcast about the next generation and stuff like that. And the first seasons where, the crew was a little too perfect and did things a little too well yeah. and never fought with each other. That's what I remember. Cause I, I do remember thinking like <clears throat> seeing like the original series and then even like next generation is like, it's, it is a little too perfect. And it wasn't until I started like seeing a bit of deep space nine where it's like, Oh wait, there are still like some of the Federation races do still like use currency and are obsessed with like becoming more rich. Like the, yeah. Yeah. And, gambling and, there's yeah, yeah. And, well, even, like, and, and human beings still do that in a way. Like, they still make like that's 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 Star Trek has obviously very been very vague about what exactly the econ the so the the economic system of the Federation yeah. is. No movie. Obviously, everyone's credits. needs are provided for, that's and true. and there's no more. But there are credits, credits and there are like the and people make bets and they play. But that's a that's a whole different thing, right? Like you don't you don't have to be in a capitalist society to make a bet. No, per se. Not. But like, but it helps. <laughs> or does it does it hurt i think it might it hurt more than hell it hurts it hurts a lot um anyway um so they commission a second pilot which is like unheard of uh and that's essentially the series the the episode that becomes the series there's still some differences but shatner's the captain now um spock is sort of the cold rational vulcan that we come to know and they actually majel barrett I think she donned a wig for the pilot, but then dyed her hair blonde. And that's when she, she before that, she was going as Majel Lee Hudek. And she changed her name to Majel Barrett to be in the second pilot. And they were trying to sneak her by all of the studio executives. Lovely. And what's funny is apparently the studio executives noticed right away. Like they were watching dailies and one of the studio executives went, well, look who's back. But did they just have it in for her? They just didn't. Like, I think it was a bit of they didn't like Roddenberry, first Mm. of all, and they didn't like the fact that he was so it was not unheard of at the time for writers, directors, uh, producers to cast their mistresses like the casting couch is a known phenomenon there. There has always been. And the truth is, like, you work with people you trust and who are you going to trust more than your partner? Someone you bang. I don't even think like (laughs) it's not it's like that's always my thing, especially with like with, you know, like, um people casting their friends or family in movies. Like I get where there's a nepotism problem in a lot of things, but like you, you know, at that level, you know them, you yeah. know what you want. And at it's a like, seedling level, it seems like actually it's kind of a safe bet. It, yeah. Well, the Coen brothers literally like they're like one of the Coen brothers is married to their um, costume designer. And the other one is married to Francis McDormand who's in oh, all their movies. Yeah. I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah. They, it's, it's it, and all like they basically all of the actors they always cast are like their friends. I love Frances McDormand. Yeah, she's great. And she's married to, I th- I want to say Joel Cohen, but I could be wrong. Amazing. So, yeah, apparently that made Lucille Ball angry enough that she almost fired them because 
she had just gone through her divorce with Desi Arnaz, who was cheating on her nonstop. That's basically why their marriage fell apart. Oh. Um, so she didn't want to so see So she was upset tanked. that Jean, well, she had a very, like, apparently by this point she had become quite, I say moral in quotation marks. It offended her she sensibilities. Had, it's, it not only was sort of like, she, she didn't like the nepotism part. She didn't like the fact that Jean was casting Majel. And I don't, again, like, she knew Majel. So again, this was not even necessarily like a thing where it was just two random people. It was, it was like possibly her friends, right. possibly people she knew. And maybe she was just worried about how it would look on her. Maybe she, because yeah. she she knew about the affair, clearly. Like right. She clearly knew about that. Um, and she almost fired them. And one of the producers on the show, Herb Solo, actually, who, was, who produced both um, classic Star Trek and The Next Generation eventually, he talked her out of it because she would have fired them both and like imagine how different the series would have been without the two of them you know like especially now like everything that's happened so yeah um they pick up nbc or nbc picks up the show um majel is nurse chapel uh there's so many books written that cover this uh i'm not going to get into it because there's so much um i'm just i've just got some highlights uh she had about 30 episodes as nurse chapel uh, the other thing about Star Trek is it was basically always on the verge of cancellation. Like every season was like the show might be canceled. The show might be canceled. The show might be canceled. Both seasons, there was a let both season one and season two, there was a, a letter writing campaign. The first season, it was actually spearheaded by science fiction writers. The second season, it was spearheaded by the fans. And Gene Roddenberry kind of egged on both and gave them material support and stuff like that. That was a big thing. And I think like, again, like saying like it was sort of like Craig said, like this partnership of them against everybody else. Mm-hmm. And uh, Gene Roddenberry had also screened the pilots at Tricon, which is like a huge, probably one of the original and very large science fiction conventions. And the crowd was so stunned that they just when it ended, they sat silently through the credits. And at the end of the credits, they all just burst into applause like they were just so stunned that they had to take it all in and figure it out and i think that was really the beginning of when gene and majel knew that there was something here like there was something some and and it was exactly what science fiction fans wanted and so i think again like you see that relationship of like the fans are sort of like this bomb that soothed them and made them realize like what they were doing had value and that people were responding to it Versus going back on set, going back to this networks and the studios and hearing like, this is never going to work. This is never going to make yeah. any money. This like, this is, this is, we don't understand why you're making all these weird choices. Like just make it like lost in space. Just make it like Buck Rogers or right. whatever. Right. Yeah. I feel like Star Trek was the first show that had a dev- a devoted fan base to the point that they had a convention. It was the first series that was quote unquote saved from cancellation by a letter writing campaign that was more than a letter writing campaign they had people sneak onto the paramount lot and stick uh star trek lives bumper stickers on all the executives cars and stuff like that like wow it was full out and um and they really like it sounds like that that wasn't the only reason that they renewed the show all three seasons but that was a big part of it another big thing is of course going back to gene's affairs apparently at the time during star trek uh, Jean was seeing both Nichelle Nichols and Majel. Nichelle Nichols played Uhura yeah. um, on Star Trek. And Nichelle Nichols, he wanted to keep having an open relationship with both of them. And Nichelle Nichols actually ended it because she saw how much Majel cared for Jean. And she said, I didn't want to be the other woman to the other to the other woman. Because again, 
Majella is still his mistress at this point. He's estranged from his wife. They're not even living in the same house, but they're not divorced. Um, they haven't. He didn't want to. He didn't want to have the load of running a show and dealing with a divorce all at the same time. And he also definitely wanted to keep from paying a bunch of alimony, <laughs> which <laughs> we'll get into more. Um, but yeah, she ended it. And um, well, good, good for, for her. her yeah. yeah. And uh, of course, Gene was heavily involved in casting. Etc. Etc. I'd like yes. to see that Star Trek casting so. couch. <laughs> I would Wes, like to not see it. Uh, we're gonna play that on a loop for Ashley. <laughs> I think I know why all the green makeup wasn't showing up. <laughs> Smeared all over that couch. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> um, so that was the other thing is uh, around 1967, uh, Gene sets up this company called Lincoln Enterprises. And essentially, they're running a semi-gray area, basically illegal, against contracts and rules about who owns what for Star Trek. Uh, he hires uh, B. Joe, Betty Joe, um, B. Joe Trim, and John Trimble. B. Joe and John Trimble are essentially Star Trek superfans from day one. They saw the premiere at Tricon. Um, they got to know Gene, and they li- they lived in California. So essentially they were like the show, the number one fan and they were the ones that they created. They got the mailing lists from science fiction conventions to build the, the Save Star Trek campaign. And what they realized is there's all these companies selling bootleg Star Trek merchandise and people are buying it. So Gene asks them to use all the mailing lists that they have to build a semi-official Star Trek merchandise company. That they can not only sell merchandise through, but because Gene is connected with the studio, they can sell copies of scripts. They can sell autographed pictures from the cast that he can get for free. They can sell uh, copies of the film reels wow. and the film cells. And what's interesting is they stole those from the Paramount and Desilu vaults. They, there's actually a story that an editor on season three needed stock footage of the enterprise flying through space he went down to the the film vaults and the security guard there said well the roddenberries signed them all out and they said that they were being destroyed so hmm. yeah <laughs> what's another funny, word for it i guess again what's also funny <laughs> Why they just is, let him do it it's like we're signing these out to destroy them they actually kept the originals <laughs> And made copies, and that's what they sold. And the reason they kept, and the the fact that they kept those originals is what enabled the Star Trek remasters and Blu-rays. Because they basically kept those originals in their estate, and then when it came time and there was enough demand for these Blu-rays, they actually had the original like film cells that were high enough quality that they could make Blu-rays from them. Wow. So, it was so yeah. Foresight. Well, it's that's kind of that interesting thing of like, yeah. Again, this is where things start to get screwy because basically once Lincoln Enterprises was up and running, Gene Roddenberry froze out the Trimbles, who I think to this day still have to work or had till they I think they're still alive and they're retired now, but they still had to work right. to support themselves other than Star Trek stuff. And I, I think part of that is just that's who they were. I think they had careers outside of TV and film. But if he had let them run the company and even given them a stake, they probably could have been a lot more comfortable. And he didn't. He basically froze them out and eventually fired them and gave the company to Majel to run. And from what I understand is Majel had no business acumen whatsoever. Mm. Um, and like this is also B. Joe Trimbles. And to the and that's the other thing is to this day, the Trimbles love both of them. They love Majel and they love Gene. 
there have been some interviews where um, at one point B. Joe called Jean Roddenberry a conniver, and then she was very quick to add, oh, but connivers see to succeed in show business. And I think Gene was very charming. He was a very charming Definitely man. Definitely, he's got something. He had something to him. I he was he. It sounds like what he was was sort of like he was this big guy, but he had been sort of like um, sick as a child, and so it made him very shy and quiet. So he was very quiet and unassuming, but also quite large, mm-hmm. and that sort of creates this. And I think he was just naturally charismatic too. Yeah, like he'd served in the war. He'd been a, an airline pilot. He'd been a a, a, a beat cop. Uh-huh. and rose through the ranks and then he was a tv writer i think he was just very naturally charming and he had a lot of charisma yeah but it makes me see like hearing this makes me think like he could have very easily gone down like an l ron hubbard <laughs> oh something so like. much yeah so much i think the only the only difference was he was almost anti-religious he was definitely anti-organized mm-hmm. religion mm-hmm. so um that's, trek, that's a whole other we thing. could argue that star trek itself is a religion yeah well sure or at least like some sort of cultural phenomenon beyond just a tv show it's definitely more than a tv show so yeah that's kind of what they're doing um that's how they're basically making money because star trek isn't really making any money and star trek wasn't popular at the time um they actually what happened was after the show was canceled the studio was so desperate to make the cut their losses that they sold it for syndication and normally you need like at least five seasons to be syndicated, but because networks were growing and trying to compete with, um, there was a network that was trying to compete with something. I can't remember what it was, but it basically put Star Trek on in that slot. And that was when Star Trek started getting popular. So after three seasons, the show is canceled. Gene has already stepped back and the show has gone down in quality noticeably. Like that's a big thing is that season three of Star Trek is the one that sort of like people point to as the silly one. Like, that's the one where, like, Spock is, like, beating up hippies or, like, his brain oh, gets yeah. stolen out of his head. And, um, <laughs> is that the one with the triples? No, the triples was season two, actually. I actually um, like the triples. Yeah. yeah, no, the triples episode is good. But this is where they a lot of fans think season three was the yeah. worst season. And yeah, they, no, didn't do it, it wasn't just that Gene was gone. It was also that the budgets were cut substantially. So they couldn't film on location. They had to always film on set. Um, stuff like that. Mm. Um, they didn't have the budget for costumes, which they already didn't. I felt that was probably one of the selling points of Star Trek is most of it takes place on this starship, which we can all well, shoot. Well, and, like, and then and then a, a couple of sets and then natural locations, essentially, uh-huh. like a canyon. Yeah, they'll beam like down. But even like yeah. looking at those old Star Trek episodes, like oh, a ton of, of those are like... Well, clearly... and a lot of those are season three episodes. <laughs> oh, okay. So. A lot of red shirts probably died in those episodes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Star Trek's canceled, goes into syndication. It's already got like a, a, a cult following. It's just not a, a big enough following to be seen as profitable. But Gene and Majel are running this mail order company and they're selling tons of stuff. In fact, to the point where they make up merchandise that they then insist that is inserted into the show. You know, the what? phrase infinite diversity and infinite combinations. What? Yeah. That Sounds was like- a plug for a necklace. The, the Vulcan symbol of like the triangle and the circle and the square and everything that was a, a, a piece of a necklace that they were selling through their company that they wrote into the show in order to sell. What? Yeah, it's the Vulcan symbol. You're telling me that they were like Hasbro before Hasbro? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, Hasbro was around at the time. This was this would be 69. Okay, yeah. Um, and that's around the time. So Gene divorces his wife. Um, there's a huge split. Um, he owes her 2000 a month in alimony, which in the 1960s, that's about $10,000 a month. 
Yikes. That's a lot of money, right? It's a shit ton. Well, that's all commensurate to what he makes technically and what he's worth, which doesn't always add up. But um, I think part of the thing was to like the mail order company really was a way to keep themselves afloat. Like they were apparently in dire financial straits in the 70s. They almost lost their house. This is when they're having a, a, a new kid. Like there were financial strains on them that I think m- sort of made them desperate. And again, I don't condone the fact that they're screwing some of their strongest supporters. Desperate or innovative? Oh yeah, I mean. desperate <laughs> or smart. <laughs> Entrepreneurs even. Um, yeah. But I think like definitely like a lot of, again, like I, again, the stealing from the studio, like, well... I mean, Paramount is still around and has no shortage of cash. Yeah. Yeah. They'll bounce back. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so yeah. he's basically writing, like, uh, low-budget sex movies. Like, Damn this it. type of stuff that's now, like... Like, he wrote a movie for the director of Barbarella that didn't do well. And they're mostly making money by appearing on uh, college talk and sci-fi conventions. That's basically what they're doing. That's how Gene is making money at this point. Huh. He kind of really was sort of like persona non grata after Star Trek. People thought he was a has-been. People thought he was done. Uh, but Star Trek starts to gain his popularity. And um, he sell, he tries to make a couple pilots. Um, don't really go anywhere. None of them go to series. But they all have sort of like pearls of stuff that eventually would come into Star Trek. Like um, two of them are about a guy who is cryogenically frozen and then wakes up centuries in the future, which is a Star Trek The Next Generation episode. There's a whole other series that was posthumously released of Gene Roddenberry's about basically a Federation starship captain that is frozen cryogenically and wakes up when the Federation has collapsed. And it's, ba- he, it's basically like a Star Trek captain in a Star Wars universe. Um, not a great series. Remember. It's called yeah. Gene Roddenberry's Andromeda. It has oh, some yeah. really good Wait, was that the Kevin Sorbo episodes? one? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I just some... called it Hercules in Space. <laughs> it is. <laughs> It, that's not entirely unfair. It and I think like Encino, <laughs> man. most fight. of it was 100% trash. There are a few good episodes. Like there's a one really interesting episode where there's a planet that's about to be invaded by these, like uh, these, the, the, the main bad guys in the series who are sort of this like hive, like cre- these creatures that like infect people and turn them into them. Mm-hmm. And they go to this planet and the planet is this peaceful colony of sort of just like really peaceful, like, like almost like Amish type people. And they're going to train them to fight. And then they find out that the whole species has genetic memory. So if they train them to fight and one of them kills somebody, every single one of their descendants will know what it's like to kill. And there's like this really interesting moral conundrum of like, do we essentially take away the innocence of the species in order to protect them from a much greater threat that will kill them all? And like, right. That was probably the most interesting episode. That really, that's what Star Trek really did for mm-hmm. science fiction. So, but he sells all these pilots. Another another pilot that he did was called the Quester Tapes, which is about an android named Quester, which was essentially the br- blueprint for Commander Data in the Next Generation. Right, like right down to the whole like he doesn't understand human beings. He <laughs> repeats lists and stuff like that. So, yeah, um, and then in 1973. They make the animated series, which uh, <laughs> I was only just introduced to that when they put it on Netflix, and it was a delight. I thought <laughs> it's a, it's definitely people are very like the, it's very controversial in terms of, and it's it's de- debated whether it's canon or not. 
Uh, Gene Roddenberry initially considered it canon, but then when he found out the fans didn't like it, he no longer considered it canon. Apparently, also at one point, they said that he was like, well, the original series isn't canon anymore. Only the next generation is canon. Whoa. Yeah, so he, he, I think he sort of just was like, one day thought this. And again, which way is the wind blowing? He was sick by that. Again, that's another thing. Uh, At this point, I think Gene's quite heavy into alcohol and pills. Stress is taking a toll. Like this is really when he's kind of like really in a rough patch. Um, And I think that's where sort of the sickness kind of came from. Eventually. I think a lot of it was just stress and uh, substance abuse and stuff like that. He did get checked into rehab at one point kind of mostly got clean. I think he was still probably using for a long time after that. I don't know the details. Didn't quite take. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I don't want to judge him for it, but of course not. Um, it affected him. Um, so the animated series does one season, doesn't do well. Around that time, they have a son. So Majel is taking care of the son. She's also doing tons of voices on the animated series. Yeah. And yeah, they were married in 1969 around in the summer of 1969 Um, and they actually got married in japan um but that wasn't a legal marriage because he wasn't finished finalizing his divorce because there was a huge fight over the star trek estate and he essentially hid lincoln enterprises from his first wife and years later she found out and sued him and won (laughs) so yeah but the animated series gets canceled they have a kid they're not really paying bills anymore they're worried about losing our house but there's enough renewed interest in Star Trek that Paramount decides they're going to make a movie. Star Trek motion and picture. they go to Gene and they say, hey, why don't you write us a script? He writes them a script. They don't like it. They essentially hire other writers and freeze him out of the movie process slowly but surely over um, the course of making all of the movies. But by the end of the process of the movies, he was basically ignored. Um, and I think... Like Majel only appears in one of the movies as doc as Doctor Chapel. That's when she gets a promotion, and uh-huh. she's not really in any of the other ones. Is it in the first one? Do you know? It's like, the it's not the first one. It's like number four or something. She's in number Voyage one Home? or two. She's in either the the motion picture or Wrath of Khan, and then she's not in it again till like Star Trek Five, and she's it's like a brief cameo. And at this stage, Gene is creator credit. That's yeah, it. that's basically, only, and uh, wow. and he's still kind of seen as a difficult person to work with. It has been. Um, but Star Trek has huge fan support. It's making tons of money off the fans. And that's really what Paramount sees. Is they're like, how can we get in on that? And I think that was really the period when Gene sort of bought into the hype. And I think Majel to a lesser extent or possibly later. But that was really when they really started buying into the hype of Gene Roddenberry as this great bird of the galaxy. Like this creator of this beautiful thing that has touched millions and he was this visionary that was right all along and right, and has its own pulse and, and its own... they start building this mythology mm. yeah and a lot of the mythology is like how much they were screwed over by the studio and the studio was just these big bad guys which i i mean i don't think that's an entirely unfair uh consideration right. i think i think definitely like of course the studio is going to be wary of a vis- of anything visionary under capitalism because that means risk yeah Yeah. that means more risk and possibly less profit you know um star trek paid off but it took a long time to pay off and it took a lot of very specific things to happen to make it the juggernaut that it is it was really the next generation that made it a a full-on widespread cultural phenomenon outside of like science fiction circles yeah that's definitely my entry point 
Yeah, that's a lot of people's entry points, especially at our age. Yeah, yeah. Night, nightly viewings. It was when, like, I remember my dad used to always watch The Next Generation, and I, I was never that into it. And it was only until, like, I think, yeah, probably like six, six or seven years ago, where I sat down and watched it because they put it on Netflix, and I was like, this show's so excellent. And I was so upset yeah. with myself for not appreciating it, like when it was. It took on me the a air. while because <laughs> Star Trek was already kind of over. Like it was Next Generation was finished in 93 that was its final in 94 i was i got into it by deep space nine that was my introduction to the series and like i didn't even realize how different deep space nine was from the other series until later so but um uh there's these movies they the first one doesn't make money the next more and more the next few movies start to make money um become a bigger phenomenon and in the mid 1980s is when Paramount decides we're going to make another TV series because we see a lot of potential for money here. And they realize that because of what Gene and Majel have done, the only way they can really make this series work is with Gene's blessing. And with Gene's name is more than just like Star Trek created by it. He's going to have to be involved and the fans are going to have to know that. Um, there's a great documentary about that. It's called Chaos on the Bridge. It's an hour long you can get it on Amazon Prime or on the people's internet. I don't care. Uh, it's worth viewing because it's interesting. The behind the scenes of Star Trek Next Generation is fucked. Like, <laughs> the, there was a ton of sexual harassment. There were heavy uh, times. A ton of like petty bullshit kingdoms. Uh, let's 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 go on. So um, this is really um, the return from exile, and I think like more and more than ever, Gene and Majel are a team. Uh, they have dealt with his affairs his infidelity uh his sickness he had he at some point he had a stroke that i think seriously debilitated him um no it wasn't a stroke he had he'd had strokes and he had a i can't remember if it was an aneurysm or an embolism Mm, what's the difference there is a difference but i don't know bubbles in the brain one of them is an air bubble in the that sounds like the embolism yeah i can't remember he had one of them them is yeah uh, a blood clot he essentially uh, had like uh encephalopathy and some heart conditions and 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 uh vascular conditions that were exacerbating his health he was in a wheelchair for a lot of that time and he just wasn't by all accounts he wasn't all there anymore like mm-hmm. he, i don't know if it was full dementia i don't know if it was like just you know sort of like whatever medications he was on but that was a real problem and chaos on the bridge covers it beautifully Majel is not in that documentary, hmm. interestingly enough, at all. Like her presence is, she is not even, she's barely mentioned, barely. The show gets made. She comes, she's the voice of the computer. She plays the walks on a Troy, still doing conventions. Star Trek is popular than ever. It's really like the late 80s, early 90s, where Star Trek really co- it gets cemented as this cultural phenomenon. And yeah, that's her gig is just the gravy gig like that's the best possible thing for especially like an an actor who's already kind of been through the the the, the industry and is you know yeah. aging out of the most juicy roles a lot of the time especially at that time like it's voiceover it's all, almost every episode you go into the studio you record a few lines like 
Uh-huh. Yeah, I think she said she said in a lot of interviews she didn't like playing Nurse Chapel at all. She called her a loser. She <laughs> thinks that the woman is kind She's of a, a loser. loser. She uh, interpreted her as kind of a weakling. Wow. Um, and I think that says a lot about Majel too, yes. and the way she very empathic. Well, she was also she was clearly from a time <laughs> she was an empath. Oh my god! <laughs> she um she clearly was from a time where women had to sort of play the boys game to get in, and I think she kind of internalized that. Right. But um, clearly she was always kind of a show woman too. Like reading a lot of interviews, it seems she has a lot of fun giving interviews to fanzines and stuff like that and talking about all that. Um, Well, it seems like something that as a couple and maybe individually, they seem to do really well was court that fandom. Yes. And get on, align themselves with it. Yeah, and, and they were maybe both, like they were, that it's like the they were they had that cult just ready to yeah they could they really could have they <laughs> yeah. really could have gone full in like mm-hmm. yeah um, I would have joined they probably. did kind of I mean they did if you think about it like they did some behaviors that were very much like what cult leaders do I mean it's like anyone who gets yeah. a lot of power and sway over people right like how can I you use get this? intoxicated by it. and um, yeah so. Um, Gene Roddenberry dies in 1991. He's been very sick. She keeps doing what she's doing for Star Trek and goes to a lot more conventions, just lives her life as a rich white lady. Uh, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, Sounds like it's all, it's all right. Even after Star Trek The Next Generation finishes, she's on Deep Space Nine for a few episodes. And that was really where Lawaxana became more than a joke character. She had... um. She they built this relationship yeah, of her okay. with um they built this relationship with between her and Odo the changeling he's like a, a shapeshifter that yeah, is made of like security liquid. officer yeah what with a the, weird with a pronounced nose bridge no that... that's a different that's I'm a different sorry. character it's fine. I'm betraying we'll, my we'll, lack we'll, of... te- we'll learn you <laughs> we'll, yeah, learn. we'll get you we'll get you up to date. <laughs> yeah. Odo but Odo was the only he was like the supposedly he was the, the data kind of, of his... Deep Space Nine yeah. essentially he was like the logic he's like the data well, he's like the, the, Spock the, hybrid the character that comments on human behavior from the outside right. allowing us to talk about the weird like <laughs> the fundamental absurdity of human interaction yes right um, which is absurd. but he was also an interesting character in his own right like that's a whole other story uh-huh. but she they they really built her out as more of an empathetic character and someone who um okay and like talked about sort of like what it's like as an aging woman a, a woman a woman who's aging and uh and and who was sort of known for her beauty and vitality and all that stuff and and it's very it's a very it's like a, a, a bit of a time for her to shine yes yeah, more than just like being in. like the yeah. annoying mother yeah that always sticks her true. nose in her daughter's business i should have watched the deep i didn't watch the deep space nine episodes because i haven't seen i think all those deep are space probably nine. like even like the one of the she's her final appearance is in one of the worst episodes which is like a jake Sisko episode mm. but her b plot is about her and odo and her like revealing to odo about the death of her other daughter besides Deanna, which was what? a part Deanna's of Deanna's sister. Oh my god! Yeah, you, it's in Spoiler. Next Generation. Yeah. Okay, uh, I guess I've seen that. And thing. it was like sort of like a, a nice, like a really interesting turn for her character. But yeah. after that, um, you know, she keeps going to conventions. Her and her son start running, like, take over the Star Trek estate. Uh, he makes a documentary in 2011. Well, he makes it all from 2001 to 2011. And it's not only about his relationships to Star Trek, but his relationship with his parents. Apparently, earlier cuts were a lot more about her, and then they really focused on him and his his finding his father's legacy, f- finding a way to to understand and love his father through 
interacting with Star Trek fans. And he talks a lot with Will Wheaton, actually, who in a lot of ways Gene Roddenberry was more of a father to than to his own son. Uh, it's really explored in depth and he said like a lot of earlier drafts were more about him and his mother and their relationship and the complex relationship that they had and it's kind of sad that we don't have that for this podcast but Mm. um, yeah she in apparently in a 1993 interview she lied about Lincoln Enterprises this mail order this company that basically became the Star Trek merchandise company that eventually Paramount contracted to handle all of Star Trek's merchandise we did it. That is now Quite worth legit. like 35 yeah. to 50 million dollars, essentially. Um, it eventually became the Roddenberry Corp. She lied and said it was like a century old and had been given to them by uh their lawyer, who was also kind of a skis. Like he's he's in the Chaos on the Bridge documentary, and he was kind of uh Gene Roddenberry's fixer. Right. <laughs> nice. So uh like and it's hard to tell. I'm not sure if she knew the truth or if this was a story that Jean maybe told her. Um, either way, like she clearly is not completely <laughs> innocent in all this. Yeah. Like it was Amazing. interesting. Like, cause it's, it's like that I mean, even like in that interview, they're like, so that's a lie. Yeah. <laughs> that's not pretty, right. That's pretty bold. Unless <laughs> she was speaking from the 23rd century. Uh, in which case. Perfect sense. Yeah. The chronology. <laughs> <ends> <laughs> <laughs> just like it's like Majel what what century do you think it is what are you talking about I'm not Majel I'm, I'm Luatsana Choi and the computer beep boop beep Earl Grey tea ah. <laughs> like are you are you actually do you actually think this or are you just faking this to get out of the lie Earl Grey tea hot boop, look beep. I just replicated us a new company yeah one century old <laughs> just like who's you ordered say? who's to say she it's had true. some tricks it's she had true. some tricks I mean, the one thing's for sure, she probably knows more about that company than I do. Yeah. I don't. What was it called again? Does it, it still have that called name? Lincoln Enterprises. It Liberty became anymore. Roddenberry Corp. Okay. It's essentially... And that's still think, what yeah. it's incorporated as today? Yes. Or, okay. It's basically the Star Trek estate. Rod Roddenberry. Yeah, he's going to inherit that. He did. Oh, he did. Yeah. So both dead. that brings me to my next point. She died in 2008. And even apparently right up until the end, she was attending conventions and... I listened to uh, the big, the really big podcast for Star Trek fans. It's called Trek Geeks, and it's hosted by two guys who regularly go to conventions. And one of them said he went to a convention she was at in 2008, and she was there all day. And he said it really felt like she got something really positive and sort of an energy charge off of interacting with the fans, which Mm -hmm. again goes to sort of what I said about the fans sort of being this source of, of energy and fulfillment for the Roddenberries in a lot of ways. I've, I've heard that those conferences um, or those events are very much like that, like a cult. For, yeah, basically. Well, like, sure. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of adoration, there's a lot of whatever. Absolutely. But if you've been if you've been involved in projects that merit being a guest in one of those events, there are a lot of people who are very happy to see. You. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I could see how if you were on the like down slope of a career in well that's that's actually something that we haven't talked that's about why william movies. shatner like goes to those conventions oh, that's, like that's why william shatner has all the time because he, <laughs> yeah. he remains a god in yeah. that realm right. and uh and that's the other thing is a lot of there's sort of like a star trek curse as it is is like if you are a regular on a star trek show it is hard to get work after because people assume that that's what you can do that's and true and they assume you can't do anything else I'm and it's sort it. of been broken now for the most part 
but I don't know. Who, the, who broke the convention it? circuit was really one of the only ways that a lot of Star Trek actors yeah. could sort of Jerry Ryan, I don't even think career. broke it. Jerry Ryan was well, she was in Boston Legal after. Oh, okay. Jerry Ryan. But William Shatner was in podcast. Boston Legal. He was too. <laughs> she was in Boston Public, which was about schools. Sorry. Oh, okay. Shit. Um, well. She was on another lawyer show, but I can't remember which one. That's the doctor, right? No, that's the, the, the sexy part, Borg character yeah. from yeah. Um, She only had one very superficial Borg. We will uh, we will discuss that in a future episode. <laughs> we will edit all of Craig's so, <laughs> so let's let's uh, for being such a dilettante. So so Majel Barrett dies. She's dead now. Oh man. Um, two thousand eight, eighteenth of December. Um, she her and her her and Gene Roddenberry's ashes, along with James Doohan, who played Scotty in the original series are scheduled to be launched into space in 2020. Wait, they haven't been launched yet? It was originally scheduled for 2014, but the flight was delayed. Oh, I thought that Gene had already been shot into space. No, he wanted to wait for Majel. That's adorable. It's kind of adorable, yeah. yeah I mean, uh, <laughs> eh, whatever. I'm not impressed. It's fucking dorky. Hollow gesture. It's fucking dorky. <laughs> I don't Man. know. What, what's he doing in the meantime? <laughs> fucking <nerds>. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> no, um, and yeah, she left, uh, she left $4 million... <laughs> She left the bulk of the estate to her son, uh, which was about, I think, about all in all $60 million. When he, and he got like 30 of it up front. And then every 10 years of his life, he'd get another $10 million. So essentially an interesting way to like like make sure that he's never he never <laughs> doesn't get too much coke. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's the other thing, too, is um, that she produced two shows that were gene roddenberry's scripts that she found or whatever but that's actually something that a lot of writers do with their their partners in next of kin is they'll they'll take a manuscript or a whatever and or a piece of work that they did and put it in a vault and say after i'm gone you can use this in case the money runs out that's like a really common mm-hmm. thing hunter s thompson did it there was that was three or four books that came out after his death that were basically to keep his wife yeah afloat so yeah, um, she's dead. So she leaves all this money to her her son, but she does leave four million dollars for her dogs. That's and one million dollars to their caretaker. I mean, <laughs> that's like my favorite was... part. Like, okay, she left four million dollars to the dogs and one million to the human that takes yes. care of them. Right, sounds about like, white. Oh my god! I always wonder that when when the money is left to the dogs, it's is probably it just in sits a in an account until the dogs die. It's probably in a trust. Well, it's not for the dogs to to buy things with uh, Wes. It's for them to like pay for the dogs' like food and their accommodations, which are clearly so who, at this point are so quite. Who decides? Who decides what the, the caretaker? What the, there's probably. Yeah, I mean, the what? caretaker probably. It. I'm sure she has it. spent at least two million of that four million on herself. <laughs> and it's released in increments, the same as. Yeah, they just release it. There's probably a monthly budget that gets doled out for them. So. I don't know, those man. Those dogs next to Ken are rich people. Rich they people. Got, they do what they want. There's no accounting for yeah. them. Yeah. Um, or maybe too much. Yeah. Maybe we should. Uh, yeah, we should do something about that. <laughs> you know. After the revolution, I'll be the only one who's rich. How's that? <laughs> oh. I want to be the only one who's rich. Wait a minute. Hey, get That's your not own. What we agree get to. your own revolution. <laughs> oh, fine. I'll make my own revolution. Okay, you do revolution first, then I'll do a revolution. <laughs> Okay, I can check out. Yeah. And then maybe Wes can do a revolution. Uh, we'll see. I incite the revolution. That's actually <laughs> fair. Like the Joker. I don't know yes, if you guys like have Joker. seen the Joker yet. I, but, I saw it. 
Yeah. I've read more about it than I... <laughs> Most leftist seen. movie of 2019. Like, oh, God. It's good. Someone actually said that on Twitter, by the way. As, like, a satirical well, take on the alt-right did, it, or something. It might have been slightly satirical, but... I wasn't picking I don't, it up. We'll ta- I don't want to talk about this on air. I don't want to, I don't want to piss off any yeah, leftist yeah. podcast host that might have us on someday. Fair enough. So, yeah, I think that about wraps it up. She's dead it's now. It's a good, it's a nice um, that sounds package. that sounded really dismissive. She's she's been she's dead not, since two thousand eight. And she's going to space next year. Going into space next year. I wonder if they're going to announce that launch because I would like to see. Keep it. an eye out for it. I wonder if it's going to be a SpaceX. Um, is that it though, or is that like the doors are closed on that space launch? Just those three people and I don't know. I guess that's a good flying. question. I think I it's going to start a trend. I, I'll I'll look into it. That'll and be something to follow up on. Maybe postscript. Yeah. Yeah. Once, once space flight comes down, I'm. I'm shooting myself into space. Yeah. Quick like question. when you're dead or when you're alive? Hmm. Can oh, I mean, I'd like to be alive the first time, maybe. Huh. I'll probably die on the trip, so <laughs> kill two birds. And then would you get your remains sent back so, to uh, So anyway, no, Major Barrett. Um, burn up the atmosphere. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think just I've kind of summed up everything that was sort of interesting. She clearly was so intrinsic to Star Trek in this very... Uh, almost liminal way i guess is the way i'd describe it like she clearly was gene roddenberry's like rock for years um like up to the day he died uh and she clearly went on to cement his legacy um love the fans uh did some crimes some some illicit things to to make sure that fortune stayed intact yeah which uh we don't hate her for it we don't blame her we get it from from my uh, understanding of the narrative it was almost necessary to keep the momentum you know when after three seasons cancellation they're kind of oh, shunted time, away yeah. from the project they kept because who knows where they would end up otherwise yep, you absolutely know, working on something else not working on anything else mm-hmm. whatever but mm-hmm. this it, you know these illegal things <laughs> yeah to bridge and again like not necessarily projects. like illegal in terms of they weren't Border, criminal they, it was all contract law right so it was right. like Technically, they didn't have full ownership. And to be Legally fair... Legally actionable. It is entirely possible things. that this was known by executives at the time. Clearly, they knew about the mail order thing. And it sounds like it's possible that people knew that they were taking the scripts Got and it. selling them. And it was just sort of like, who cares? Let them make the pennies. We care about the big bucks. Right. And there was they didn't really realize... like They're, they're just... I don't. I, I. I. truly understand that. Like it was not believed up until I think about the mid nineteen seventies, and it wasn't really until the next generation was a hit in like nineteen eighty five, nineteen eighty seven, or nineteen eighty eight, that was. It was really like okay, we can make a bunch of money off this right. by the networks. I think it was such a like weird, weird chain of events that had Let to happen to make Star Trek first, like yeah. even even close to what Star Wars was, right? So yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's weird that Star Wars found success so quickly and readily, and like Star Trek. Well, Star Trek was a success in terms of what it was, but like Star Star Wars was after Star Trek. Star Star Trek was nineteen sixty seven to nineteen sixty nine. Star Trek was seventy seven. Yeah, yeah. I knew it was before. Like, I don't want to say paved the way for Star Wars, but oh, it did. The the audience was definitely, I think, more receptive to like big time that type of thing by that time and that makes it easier for studios to say yes to and star like wars that. was a movie like at the time tv was sort of seen as this like that's the b the that's the that's the, the farm team essentially uh-huh. like yeah occasionally if someone's really good we take them and put them in movies but up until like lost like 
it was like if you were a TV actor, you were a TV actor, and you didn't you mm-hmm. didn't do at best you you got bit parts in like B movies. Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't really until um, the early two thousands that that even really changed. So yeah, yeah. it's definitely that. <clears throat> well, yeah, kind of the long format TV series I think is what most people yeah, are really into absolutely. now. But uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if. Like I guess Discovery is doing pretty good. They're going on like their yeah, so, third or fourth yeah, season. Yeah, that's the other so. thing is Rod Roddenberry is basically in charge of all of it now. Um, so maybe, maybe, maybe future episode. Maybe who knows? Yeah. Uh, Rod, if you're listening and you like this, I would love to write on Star Trek Discovery. Please yeah. hire me. I have spec scripts. Yeah, I'd I don't like have to an act. agent, but you can contact me through my email, which will be somewhere where you can probably on my website. Make me a Give Klingon. Give me the keys to the Enterprise. Uh, no. Um, yeah. That is something, actually, I will say. I found a lot of other interesting second bananas out of Star Trek. B. Joe Trimble was definitely one. Nichelle Nichols. Uh, one of the writers on the original series, Gene L. Kuhn, who was sort of considered, he he was sort of the, he brought, so Gene Roddenberry was sort of the ideals and the the sort of like the idea guy. And Gene Kuhn was really the guy that brought like the humor and the humanity to the original Star Trek series. Um, died of cancer in 1974. Hmm. So, uh, but also an interesting Bob Justman, who was the longtime non writing non writing producer, like he was essentially the 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 nuts and bolts money guy who made the show work. Other people like Rick Berman, Michael Piller, who sort of got their start on Next Generation, but like they were sort of long running producers, writers, that kind of stuff. I mean, there's tons of people that we can definitely do other episodes on in the future. In the 23rd century. So that's that was our first episode. That was our inaugural episode. Um, If you're listening to this on Revolver, which is our Patreon only show, which is how we're first premiering the show. Thank you for your patronage. Because of that, we're not really going to do any plugs, but um, if people want to find us online, I am at StopJoeNow on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, Wes, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me at Wes Walcott on Twitter and Instagram, I believe, I so, is, yeah. as well. Yes. Let's go with that. Yeah. Craig, do you even have social media? No. Good <laughs> luck finding me. Oh, I'll find but online. Craig does lurk on Twitter, so <laughs> if you post a tweet, just know he might judge you. Yeah, yeah. Just give me a shout out. I'll, maybe I'll find it. You can contact Craig by sending Wes nudes and uh, telling him they're for Craig. I will pass Please them do. along. Yeah. Yes. And even if he doesn't, just do it. <laughs> yeah. I don't mind. So that's our first episode. Thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time when we're going to talk about. Uh, Rosalind Franklin, I believe. We'll talk about some DNA. Ooh. Cool. Thanks, all. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Hey there, lovely listeners. I'm Talia Murdoch, and I'm here to tell you about my show, Everything Economics. Every week I talk about the world around you, specific social and economic issues, and dive into how fantasy realms would work in real life. That's Everything Economics on the Cave Goblin Network. This is a Cave Goblin podcast. For other podcasts like this, visit cavegoblins.com. We hope you have enjoyed this program.